0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Kwikwetlem peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, Watched your winding rivers as they blow around the bend, To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend, Coming to you from the West Coast. This is Politicos. Today is February twenty third, twenty twenty three. I'm Scott Boom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, not, nothing, almost nothing happened here <laughs> in British Columbia. We had a resignation, another resignation, actually from the governing caucus, and uh, we're going to dig into the Emergencies Act inquiry as much as we can. And then we have a couple of quick takes. It's, it was a family day week. I had I had an operation this week. Neither of us are feeling great. Let's just get into this. But first, as always, throw us some cash at Patreon.com/Politicoast. Liter- like literally the only BC news this week. Like there was some speculation about what's coming in the budget next week, so that will give us some real content. Uh, but I think there was one new private members bill on adding doing something with crown land leases. Uh, but the big news was that Melanie Mark. Uh, MLA for your riding, actually, Scott. Vancouver Mount Pleasant is resigning and retiring at some point in the coming months. But she is, she's done with the toxic chamber that is our legislature.
1: Yeah, so of course this means there will be a by-election coming up at some point. Uh, of course, being Vancouver Mount Pleasant, it is basically a foregone conclusion that uh, there will be a another NDP MLA coming out of my riding.
0: Yeah, Melanie Mark was uh, interesting, right? She was the first female First Nations elected member of the legislature. There have been other Indigenous members of the legislature, but she was the first woman to be elected from an Indigenous background, first to hold cabinet. Um, In terms of the electoral record of the NDP there, they have generally gotten above 60% in every election. Uh, except 2001 when they got a mere 45% of the vote. And, that was, when and Jenny Kwan, yeah, that was when Jenny Kwan was one of two MLAs. This was Mike Harcourt's riding back from 91 to 96. Jeez, um, this is the orangest riding in the province. I'm yeah, no, assuming. like I, I
1: could not have picked a worse spot to live if I wanted my vote to count provincially. Actually, federally too, just Vancouver East is about as orange.
0: She was elected in a by-election in February 2016. Obviously, that didn't take much. She actually competed against Pete Fry in that one. He was the runner-up. And Gavin Dew, the name, Scott. We know all these people. The Greens have been the runner-up in the last two elections as well. Uh, Melanie Mark served once the NDP took government as the Minister of Advanced Education, Skills, and Training, and then following the 2020 election, moved to the portfolio for uh, Minister of Tourism, Arts, Culture, and Sports. Her time in advanced education was actually pretty productive. Uh, she was responsible for creating the provincial tuition waiver program. This allows youth who are in or coming out of the foster system to go to university for free. Undeniably, good thing for people who have a pretty rough life, to s- pretty rough start to life. Often, uh, she also created the BC Access Grant, and that helped remove a lot of barriers for low and middle-income students. Uh, she eliminated fees for adult basic education and English language learner programs and eliminated interest on student loans. So generally, like a lot of work to really make post-secondary education more affordable in this province. And it's come a long way. So credit to her for that. Her time in the tourism department was not as um glamorous, let's say.
1: Yeah, well, she took over in 2020, which was not the year you wanted to be running anything with tourism.
0: It meant she got to sign a lot of checks, I think. Or not, like, not directly, but direct programs to support a very struggling industry because of COVID, obviously.
1: Even so, like, not not the ideal situation any minister wants to find themselves in. Um, yeah, handing out money can be popular, but not usually when it's because things are going really badly, and you have to get the money out.
0: Hand out money or your ministry won't exist because there won't be tourists because there won't be hotels. yeah, that's a rough time uh then she got saddled with the like big controversy of last year for the n d p or one of them with the royal b c museum redevelopment plan and i don't think this was like her fault in any way like she was involved in it obviously but like she didn't exacerbate the issue any more than it was like a whole of government fuck up um but no but like also at the same time
1: like a lot of the problems at least politically there had to do with the communications around it and not actually Telling British Columbians there was a problem before putting a billion dollar solution in front of them, and that is one of the main roles of being a minister is doing that public facing communication. So there was a pretty clear miss there,
0: yeah. And like, I think one of the things she wanted to bring to that redevelopment, and it's one of the things I would have supported and do still support is a real focus on decolonization and reimagining the museum in a lot of ways. And I know that that was always controversial, even before the billion dollar price tag came out, or the $800 million. And even now that Lana Popham is in the role, there's public musing about whether, for example, the Old Town exhibit should be reopened. And this is one that closed during Melanie Mark's time, because it needed to be redone, because it it's dated. And There's probably a lot you could criticize as ahistoric or at least historic through rose-colored glasses or white-colored glasses, let's say. And now they might reopen it just because there's public demand and having half of your museum closed for nothing.
1: Oh, the museum's going anywhere at the moment?
0: So, you know, it's a tough role to be in. Um, She had actually stepped down from... The Ministry of Tourism in September 2022. Uh, she had cited personal medical reasons for doing it, but she was given minister without portfolio. So she was still at the cabinet table. She just didn't have to have the full responsibilities of the Minister of Tourism or the Minister of Education, for example. Uh, but now I think she's just like drawn the line in the sand and you know what? I'm done with it, she says. Um, it sounds like because she was elected in a by election just before the 2017 election that I think this is the length of time she needed to qualify for her pension, possibly. That's often cited as a reason people stick around a certain amount of time in politics. I don't know how true it is, and I'm not gonna say that she's doing it for the money in any way, shape, or form. But it's also very reasonable to say, you know what, I can do three more months, get a very good pension coming out of this, as politicians should. They give up a lot of their life and go through a lot of hell to be in the role that they're in uh and here we are and that's one thing she cited in her resignation speech is just the toxic culture uh of the legislature and of the institution and she just says i'm not gonna miss this it felt like a torture chamber scott
1: it's a rather graphic way to describe it
0: yeah she was quite um impassioned in the speech it's definitely something i need to like fully sit down and watch I've seen clips uh, she called out the nastiness from white men in here I've put up with enough abuse in my life she will not miss the character assassinations she complained about people calling her a bitch um, so she's rightly frustrated by the treatment of you know politicians the treatment of women in politics the treatment of people of color and indigenous women so you know what I don't blame her it sucks that we're losing her because she was talented despite the challenges she faced in uh, tourism. But overall, I she's still got a long career ahead of her, I think. So best of luck to you, Melanie Mark. And I guess that raises the question now of who's going to be your next MLA, Scott?
1: Yes, uh, whoever the NDP nominates.
0: You better get your membership card if you want to vote. <laughs>
1: yeah well it's going to be probably a fairly competitive uh nomination process i would guess because like i said it's it's about as guaranteed a seat as you can get anywhere in vc hell anywhere in canada for that matter and yeah i imagine quite a few people uh from that side of the aisle are eyeing it so we'll have to see
0: the equity mandate will apply so it has to be Someone from an equity seeking group. And I think it even needs to be a woman because a woman has resigned. So it can't just be a person of color, but don't quote me exactly on that. So it narrows the pool of candidates a little bit, but there's a lot of very talented people in Vancouver and in East Van in particular who the NDP could draw on to fill that role. Uh, the question is, can they find someone who has the right who wants to be a part of the government. And I think there, there's still a lot. I think you'll find can. people
1: there. And like, this is one of those things where it's such a safe ride, you. There's no real point in going out and driving a star candidate. I mean, you always could, but like, you're not going to get like a Nathan Cullen situation out of this, where it gets really awkward as they have to uh, find a way around the mandate as they've done in that case. But uh, yeah, at this point, it, they should be able to find someone who fits the general profile of what they're looking for and uh yeah it'll just be I think a real question is just how open and competitive it is versus uh how much the center is put in a thumb on the scale. Like does uh does David Eby put his uh you know his star candidate forward or his pick?
0: Yeah, and do the Angeli Apidurai supporters come forward with a you know a grassroots campaign and do it a bit more cleanly this time to try to get their climate justice champion in east van i think
1: although the last ride she ran in doesn't overlap this one at all but uh
0: that doesn't matter
1: people before (laughs) i think the bigger question is would uh where
0: does kevin falcon live
1: Good point. Um I think the bigger question though is like would the NDP even green lighter at this point?
0: Oh, I didn't say necessarily Apadurai, but I think Apadurai like she expressed following the leadership race that she was disqualified from, a desire to stay involved in the party, and David E. B expressed the positive goodwill to want to keep her around. Um I don't think they want to sandbag her twice. It's much easier to contain her within caucus than on the outside. Look at, you know, the talented people in there who might be more radical like Bowen and Ma. They, you know, want to be a part of the machine and they work on the inside and get frustrated. And maybe they burn out like Melanie Mark and leave and then want to burn the place down on the way out. But maybe it's her. Maybe it's somebody else. There's a lot of good people to watch for. So that'll be an interesting race to watch uh the 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 nomination not the actual by-election and same goes i guess for uh langford Juan de Fuca and john horgan's old riding two by-elections maybe there is something to that election speculation i still don't think so
1: i don't think so eb would be foolish to rush into an election and potentially shorten his premiership down by a bit
0: it it will look really good on him to have the like soft easy uh by elections to start off as his first like tests
1: yeah i yeah, like the chances that he like would ian rank in things if he uh calls for an early election i think are pretty low but even so like that puts the next election a year closer and why would you do that because that one's potentially the competitive
0: Hey everyone, Ian here. Unfortunately, due to some personal circumstances, we were unable to record our planned interview this week on the final report of the Public Orders Emergencies Commission. And rather than give you our half-informed takes on the coverage we've seen of the report, we decided to hold off for now and we'll aim to get that interview to you in the next week or two, which will also give us a bit more time to dig into the report itself. It's a doozy, as even the executive summary is nearly 250 pages of nuanced discussions of policing, federalism, and the limits of public protest, stuff we're both very interested in. So stay tuned for that. We're both looking forward to it, and it should be really good. We'll also have in-depth coverage of David Eby's budget coming up next week, and hopefully in a more exciting latter half to the spring sitting here in BC. And with that, I'll turn it back to our quick takes to close off this abbreviated show for an abbreviated week. Moving on to quick takes. Happy, happy war in Ukraine day to all who celebrate. I
1: don't like "happy" is quite the right word. It's more a somber thing to note, but yes, uh, we just uh, basically passed the one year mark as of like a couple hours ago for when that uh,
0: started. You mean when the policing operation to denazify Ukraine began? But
1: don't even start with that. <laughs>
0: That pretense fell apart real fast, as in no one bought it on the day. Far,
1: far too many people uh, bought into it right up until the bombs started falling. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, undoubtedly the biggest geopolitical event of the last year for sure. And if it wasn't for COVID, um, I would say the last decade. And even that decent argument, it beats COVID for overall geopolitical impact
0: so we're at an awkward stage in this conflict right it's it definitely hasn't gone according to putin's plan the
1: the three days to uh yeah you've have turned yet yeah,
0: a, a very impressive start to be honest and then it, it really was the like they got
1: bought down pretty much right away
0: they had like a day or two or like well, maybe even a week but yeah oh, like they it, the, it quickly turned around uh, ukraine is advancing to try to retake a lot of their territory uh there's still a lot of fighting in the eastern territories where there's a lot of russian sympathies which can be you know debated like how much of that is russians put into those lands in the way that england took northern ireland uh it's not the same situation but not the time yeah, completely trusted.
1: different. but uh <laughs>
0: yeah it's messy it's messy.
1: Uh, we're we're not going to be able to give you anywhere near as like blow by blow depth uh, of reporting on this as you can find elsewhere. But I think it's mostly worth kind of marking the occasion, noting that uh, this has had pretty significant impacts kind of across Canada, the world, and it's going to continue to linger for quite some time as us our and our allies uh, figure out how to proceed.
0: Yeah. They, and as well as um, right now, there's, there's no path, no clear like end point in sight. Right. There's yeah, no desire on as... either side to negotiate peace. And so it's like what? ugly fighting until Russia gives up and retreats.
1: Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, with the uh, sounds of what's happening with uh, China moving to provide more material support, that's probably going to get trade out longer at this point
0: uh Angus Reed has an interesting poll out yesterday on how Canadians are feeling about the conflict. A lot the majority uh fifty five percent are in support of continuing a fight and think ukrainians should continue to fight just thirty two percent say to get all of its territory and twenty three percent uh just the eastern provinces
1: It's honestly about thirty points lower than I would have guessed
0: it's it's declined, I believe, since previous polls. Uh one of the things they highlight is in terms of how much do Canadians support providing defensive weapons or uh lethal aid. Both of those have declined by eleven points, and notably fifty two percent support defensive weapons and thirty seven support thirty seven percent support providing lethal aid, which are very different things.
1: Are they though? Like no. here's the thing it's if someone's coming towards you and you have a machine gun that uh you're using to stop them that machine gun can also be used is a a lethal weapon and b is uh something that can be used defensively as well and the offensive defensive <laughs> distinction is not one that really applies to almost any modern weapon
0: i think before the episode you mentioned mines
1: mines but- might be the only thing you could argue is like a only defensive.
0: Canada is a member of the uh, maybe treaty on anti-personnel landmines, at least. So we probably aren't giving them. Yeah, mines, we're not. Thankfully, be because sending. those are horrendous. Yeah,
1: we won't be sending those over to uh, to Ukraine. Uh, maybe we could
0: send them some bollards and some like you know fencing and stuff, trench diggers. That's defensive stuff, but I guess you wouldn't call those weapons. It's a very weirdly worded question. Or people just have weird concepts in their mind. Like you also flagged that. Yeah. People don't have
1: great concepts of how wars are actually fought in a lot of ways. Um, as some of this. So like one of the things that jumped out to me is that uh, they break down by uh, kind of what are some various things Canada could do to support uh, in this poll. And have stuff like humanitarian aid uh, is at 71%. Although that's down by eight points. Yeah. Um, is something, but you also have stuff like enforce a no fly zone and send Canadian troops to fight alongside Ukrainian forces, which are at twenty four percent and twelve percent respectively I mean thankfully that's pretty low because both of those are terrible actual shooting war ideas, but they they're not really all that different they're both of those describe Canadians shooting at Russians, but yeah. uh, for some reason there's a twelve point gap there.
0: Like, I think the key takeaway from this poll is that Canadians are still quite supportive of the efforts we've done to support Ukraine. Uh, If anything, we're shifting more to a what we're doing is about enough rather than we should be doing a lot more. Uh, And we should be doing a lot more. But I mean, you disagree with the majority or, you know, the plurality in this poll. And I, you know, I disagree with people in polls all the time. I'm just saying what the numbers say here. And polls are sometimes wrong. We should both. Acknowledge, uh, but there is also a shift away from. It might just be a shift away from interest in it. Like people are tired. There's a not-
1: lot of it. It's like it's kind of faded into the background a bit. It's you know you you don't see kind of whatever's happening in Ukraine take up quite as much uh, attention in the media these days. Um, and yeah, that is the unfortunate reality. It's just like this is probably the one of the most significant things happening in the world right now and canada should be engaging with that in a productive way that leads to uh the outcomes we want but like it's hard to keep the interest of people uh going on that over the long term and this is something that is not likely to be resolved in a couple more months time so we do actually need to prepare for something longer term i don't think uh the political leadership in canada has done a particularly great job of uh selling that
0: the only other thing i would flag here is there is a partisan divide in this i'm going to ignore the block it's a pretty small sample size and the other respondents i think we saw the greens were the most war hawkish in the like full tables but the sample size for that was probably like 10 people so you can't really draw anything But comparing the three major parties, the conservatives tended to be the most supportive of Ukraine negotiating for peace, although that was not the plurality. The plurality said, reclaim all the territories, Uh, but more conservative. The conservatives were the most divided on that versus the liberals and NDP were much more supportive of continuing war efforts. And the same thing is visible on supporting uh, or providing military assistance, where conservatives – Uh, are less supportive than liberal and NDP voters on that question.
1: Although still a plurality.
0: Yeah, still a plurality. It's just a more divided party in a way. Like you have 34% uh, of conservatives saying they should provide military aid. Sorry, you have, let's say 44% of conservatives saying they should keep providing more military aid for at least a year or longer. Versus 29% saying they should just stop in the war entirely. Um, versus that latter numbers like 15 or 12 for the NDP and Liberals. And so the Conservatives honestly have lower, a split, right?
1: Yeah, it's a lot lower for the NDP than I would have thought.
0: There's a lot who are just unconfused in the NDP, it looks I like, in this poll. I think that's
1: the case. Like, if you took away the don't-know answer, you'd probably get them looking more like the Conservatives, but
0: yeah. Not quite. The red bar and the blue bar are yeah. much more equal but the red in size bar would be size.
1: But the, once again, this is an audio podcast, so yeah. co- color bars uh, don't help our listeners.
0: It just, what I'm thinking about just here is like, I can see within the conservative coalition in North America, you have that like mega end that doesn't really know what to do with Russia because of like how yeah, fucked up it got out under Trump. And some of that is present in Canada, right? And so I don't know what you do with this. If you're Pierre Polyev, where you have a, base that is like split over a question like this i guess you just don't talk about it and you talk about inflation just inflation or something else domestic
1: i mean that's how everything has always gone in canada is nobody talks about foreign policy and talks domestic um but yeah that's a relatively recent development within conservative circles and not one for the better um yeah It feels unnatural to have them not be the more hawkish party on this. I don't know. It it was better when uh, you had all the conservatives uh, saying how great it was that uh, Harper told uh, Putin to get out of Ukraine back in 2014. And man, I wish they could recapture that energy rather than this divided uh, mess.
0: Maybe this is just the wrong war. Uh, They need a different enemy that I was going to say is like clearly the bad guy. Which which is like... She like had be the a whole Cold here, War. Like
1: Russia fits that bill very good, or very well, very well fits the bill very well. And uh, but,
0: but they have the autocrats, and you know we have our Galen Weston's here. are not autocrats. That was the, the oligarchs. We have our own oligarchs, and we got to look out for them. I guess I don't know. It's messy. I don't, it's ugly. I don't know if there's much more to say on it.
1: Yeah, it's like I said, it's messy, it's ugly, and it's going to stay messy and ugly for quite a while because this war is nowhere near being resolved at the moment.
0: And speaking of messy and ugly, our final story is a major exclusive from the Globe and Mail. This follows a exclusive story from Global News's Sam Cooper a few months back. Uh, Cooper reported that the 2019 election, Csis was aware of efforts by China to influence. The results of that. And now Global Mail is reporting that CSIS thinks China was actively trying to influence our 2021 election as well. Uh, following this, CBC News has a piece where Trudeau is saying that report has inaccuracies. He's not saying what inaccuracies they are. It's top secret stuff. But he is refuting the spies, or at least the spies who leaked
1: yeah so i mean there's a few things we could say on this like um first i'll encourage everyone to go read the the globe story it co- goes into quite a bit of detail over uh various allegations involving uh support for uh certain candidates primary and particularly the uh goal was to end up with a liberal government because it was considered a be less hostile to uh, Beijing's interests. And particularly they wanted a liberal minority government, which uh, means right now, I think the uh, CCP has done a better job calibrating uh, Canadian election results than a bunch of the uh, strategic voting groups have. Uh, But...
0: um, I mean, a lot of Canadians wanted a liberal minority... And we're generally happy in polls. So we don't have evidence that the Chinese strategy worked if it happened. So that is
1: one of the mm-hmm. things that Trudeau has said, is that uh, it's not clear that uh, this actually had the end result, though. Um, I think you'd probably look at a couple of writings where it may have been significant on the writing level, particularly uh, the Conservatives lost a couple of seats in Richmond that had been uh, longtime holds there and like on the individual um riding level there's probably something to it although it didn't result in the change of government uh being that affected the response from the liberals has not been great on this overall um trudeau was much more concerned about the leaks in his public statements than the alleged interference which is not a great sign uh particularly because the alleged benefit was for his party and also that uh you know this is the sort of thing that serious countries should take very seriously and focus more on the actual acts rather than the people mentioning that they may have might have happened um so for all of those reasons i don't think the liberals have really hit the right note on this uh Particularly, there was uh, one MP, uh, Jennifer O'Donnell, that uh, likened, uh, or in a committee statement, uh, likened this to uh, Trump-like efforts to uh, demonize the Democrat process, which I think was kind of missing the mark a bit on that. Anyway. Overall, I think there does need to be a stronger response to this uh, from the government, both in terms of... Um, reassuring canadians uh, about the integrity of our elections there needs to be some serious looks at where things went wrong with uh, the organization the liberals stood up to deal with election interference because they are in theory supposed to monitor and alert if there is any attempts to that and that didn't happen in this case As far as we can tell, and this is probably something that's not going to, that needs something independent and not a partisan liberal response to really uh, move all of those forward. And so far, there doesn't seem to be much indication from the prime minister that that's something they're looking at doing.
0: So I approach all of this with the basic view that there are no impartial independent actor like everyone has a political motivation partisan or not in this story CSIS someone in CSIS is leaking and that is that is serious that should be serious like an organization that is built on secrecy and spies and all that like stereotypical shit shouldn't be talking to the media and so like the fact that They have now leaked to two major journalists to get the stories out there tells me that someone in there is frustrated. And now they can be frustrated for a lot of reasons. And maybe they're frustrated for the justifiable reasons that the Trudeau liberals aren't taking this seriously. Or maybe they just have a different view of China than like the RCMP and Elections Canada, neither of whom have – I think RCMP launched an investigation into 2019 following some of the reports – But neither have really flagged that anything that they saw was wrongdoing, and these are all equally independent bodies from the partisan liberals. So it doesn't fully add up here. Now, of course, Trudeau is also a very partisan, like an obviously partisan actor in this. In that he doesn't want to say that the elections he quote unquote won, like got a plurality and were tainted, he would not say that, but. It's also like not unbelievable to me that he did see these reports and also had other information from Elections Canada saying we don't have reason to be concerned. And then it was left at that. Or maybe he had more information than we have because we only have like allegations from, we have like reports of reports and like we don't have a full story here. So for, I can't take it at face value that. We know for certain that money changed hands in the ways that it was reported and that that was effective.
1: But also, like, the the money changing hands wouldn't have probably triggered something at Elections Canada. Like, the allegation is that basically uh, the Chinese consulate got Chinese uh, Canadian citizens to donate to various campaigns and basically reimburse them for those donations
0: but that is an illegal contribution that,
1: that that's an illegal contribution like it's very illegal like a clear campaign finance violation but in terms of what shows up in elections canada's reports that uh, get filed from the campaigns to elections canada those don't jump out as something that is improper they just appear as every other donation
0: so like no, but if it, they were informed of this, they would investigate Yeah, they, they and could they investigate. they have done it in, like, domestic cases yeah. where it's happened. but um, And we don't have that investigation. Yeah,
1: it, yeah, what I'm saying is, like, it's not obvious that this would have triggered something from Elections Canada. From, like, their outward view of, of how it would run. Someone would have to submit some sort of report or whistleblowing statement to them to trigger an investigation. And that's one of the things we don't know, is how well all of these... Departments are talking to each other
0: so a story to keep an eye on um definitely more to be done and I think that's one of the things the uh, parliamentary committee you alluded to is working on, and they are planning to call a bunch of witnesses, including uh, ministers back for further questioning and hopefully out of that process we can get at least some clarity on what tangible actions Parliament and cabinet can do to improve faith in our system at very least
1: yeah and these also shouldn't go um unresponded to as well like there there does need to be a response from the government that is more than or just a yeah we don't really think much happened or a sternly worded uh letter uh to china on this like this is the sort of thing that is serious enough that uh other countries would often, like persona non grata, uh, mm. diplomats accused of uh, participating in this sort of thing, and we should uh, be looking at doing that related to the uh, f- uh, for the various staff at the uh, consulates and embassies that uh, are alleged to have participated in this.
0: And we should stop interfering in other countries' elections when we do do that. Oh, if only spies just stopped fucking with everybody else, we could all live in global harmony.
1: Yeah, it's, uh maybe a little <laughs> naive I <laughs> take.
0: Oh, we're ending on foreign policy, but uh I don't know, have a good weekend. I'm we're both very tired. <sighs> good night. And that has been
1: Plitoast. Find links to everything we talked about at plitoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com/plitoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikov. Blade Coast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.